Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. We seek to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safe, healthy, and just society. Overdose prevention centers and safe consumption spaces are proven public health interventions that save the lives and improve the health of people who use drugs. The state of Rhode Island has already approved a pilot program in other states, such as Colorado, are looking to follow in their footsteps. The Colorado Legislature's Interim Opioid and Other Substance Use Disorders Study Committee recently voted to send a bill on OPCs through the drafting process so it may become a bill in the next session. They held a hearing on the concept in August. Let's hear from one of the witnesses, Lisa Rayville, Executive Director of the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver. So my name is Lisa Rayville. I'm the Executive Director of the Harm Reduction Action Center, Colorado's largest public health agency that works specifically with people who inject drugs and people who smoke drugs such as crack, meth, and fentanyl. I will be speaking uh, kind of how we got here, uh, how we think we got here, and, um, and then others will kind of talk about what we need. There are a few things we absolutely positively need. I do speak quickly. It's kind of my thing. I was going to bring my binders today, but they're getting heavy with all my data. Um, so I just want to make sure you know that a lot of what I'm working with here is evidence-based, data-backed, scientific interventions, right? We have that, and then we have the worst overdose crisis we've ever been in with the most unpredictable drug supply. I cannot be more clear about that as a frontline service provider. Um, harm reduction reduces the harms associated with X. Today we're talking in relation to drug use, however we use lots of forms every day in every way, sand in a playground, helmets when riding a bicycle, designated drivers reduces the harm arms associated with your drunkenness. I've got prevention over here, I have treatment over here, I have the criminalization of drug users here. I'm just going to talk about the life in the middle. If stigma, shame, and incarceration worked with drug use, we'd have wrapped this puppy up years ago. All that's done is drive use underground, where people have gotten preventable chronic diseases such as HIV, hepatitis C, and diet of overdose, so we're doing something different. Because harm reduction is today. Most often treatment is tomorrow and prevention is yesterday. So we are action items for today for a healthier and safer community and we are never going to treatment or incarcerate ourselves out of an unregulated and toxic drug supply. We just won't. Harm reduction is no place for ego. It's a place to forget what you think you know and set aside your opinion so that when you meet people where they're at, you can take the time to ask them where they want to go. How can I support you for a healthier and safer you today? This is our overdose memorial wall at our agency. As you can see, it's growing. Overdose is the leading cause of death of our unhoused neighbors in Denver and has been for the last seven years. The Colorado Sun just did an article a couple of days ago. Um, 166 people who are unhoused have died so far this year compared with 108 last year, and they are blaming overdose. 
overdose deaths have been out of control um, since, well, forever, but especially since about June-ish of this year. Outside overdose deaths, Colfax and Pearl, 22nd and Stout, Colfax and Downing, Colfax and Colorado. It used to be cops coming up on people overdosing. Now it's 17-year-old baristas who are being re-triggered every day because they don't want to clean the bathroom before they go home. This is the memorial wall that continues to grow at our agency. And one of the pictures up there is actually Vernon Lewis, a former co-worker of mine that passed away. About five or six or six-ish years ago, he did an overdose prevention training here for Governor Hickenlooper in this very hall. These are our folks that are dying, and they're dying publicly. And it doesn't have to be like this. You feel guilty that you spent more time thinking about someone else and grieving that loss and paying more attention to that loss than you did another loss that was also significant. Because right now in the last couple of years, there's just been no time to give proper attention to death. We are struggling on the front lines. There are 21 syringe access programs in the state. We are struggling with the deaths and we are struggling with the grief. I cannot be more clear about that. There's four main reasons why people overdose. The first is the change in the quality of the drug. The supply is unpredictable. Second main reason is any period of abstinence, coming out of jail, prison, treatment, living a life of recovery. Folks coming out of incarceration are actually 129 times more likely to overdose post-incarceration in those first two weeks than the general population. The third main reason is mixing, so benzodiazepines and fentanyl, alcohol and opioids. And then the fourth main reason is simply using alone. This is where we're losing a lot of our unhoused folks. Now, we have passed eight-ish pieces of legislation in the last 14 years, four to reduce the harms associated with overdose, three to reduce the harms associated with syringe criminalization. Now, we know that one-third of law enforcement officers nationally will be pricked by a syringe at some point in their career. Two-thirds of that one-third will be pricked multiple times. It's actually one in five with Denver Police Department. We've passed two laws, one in 2013 and one in 2015, that promotes proper we need folks coming across town disposing of used syringes and to reduce needle stick injuries to law enforcement. Anybody in the state can get access to naloxone virtually over the counter. In 2015, all 100 state legislators voted in support of it, and we know you never agree on anything, but we're so pleased that you agreed on that. We are struggling from the legislation of 2022. Our folks actually signed do not prosecute orders in the event of their overdose death. They wouldn't want their seller prosecuted. Most of the time that drugs get to the streets, it's an unpredictable drug supply. Most people who use drugs sell drugs. We, the people who are most affected by all aspects of drug use and the war on drugs, will not stand by while our brothers and sisters are locked up, abused, and dehumanized in our names. 470 pharmacies in the state can get access to naloxone. 204 law enforcement departments in the state carry Narcan. DPD was first. Colorado Springs PD was second. And there's actually eight county jails that train heroin and fentanyl users in jail how to recognize, excuse me, and respond to an overdose and put that naloxone on their property for upon release because they know about that 129 times more likely to overdose post-incarceration. That's Arapahoe, Boulder, Denver, Douglas, Larimer, Jefferson, Route, and Moffat County jails. There are 21 syringe access programs in the state. What we're doing is actually happening in 35 states in 92 countries. I can assure you we were never being revolutionary. It reduces injection-related diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C, improves public safety. 
We talked about that law enforcement angle. People are living longer with HIV. It doesn't have to be. It's a manageable and chronic disease. Our needles cost a dime. And evidence-based. There's not many more rigorously tested best practices to treat chaotic and non-chaotic drug use as a health issue and not a moral issue. This is the magnification of a needle before use, after one use, and after six uses, it starts to curve and shred. When you don't have a syringe access program in your community, it doesn't mean that folks aren't injecting. It means they're using that one on the right. Just wanted to spend a moment on fentanyl. There's a lot of misinformation out there about fentanyl. I tell you, if the drug war had a communications director, she's doing a great job of getting misinformation out. Fentanyl is a strong synthetic opioid. It's been used in clinical settings for decades. Heroin is leaving us due to climate change and lack of poppy cultivation. It's much easier to make a synthetic opioid in a lab than it is to deal with farmland and water access. Much like in 1920s alcohol prohibition, they weren't brewing cases of beer. They were making cheap, hard liquor in the bathtub. The only the difference is, is in 1933, when people were going blind and dying, they decided to regulate it. Fentanyl's fourfold in Colorado. Uh, sometimes it's being found in cocaine and meth. That's accidental cross-contamination on the scales. Fentanyl powders here, that's a little newer to us. But primarily, it's being pressed into pills called the blues. There's a little fentanyl, a lot of fentanyl, or no fentanyl in those pills. Our folks are smoking between 5 and 20 per day. Now, there are benefits to smoking. Smoking is risk reduction over injecting. Anytime you break your skin, you're at risk of infection. Stigma reduction, right? Smokers think they're better than injectors. People who drink think they're better than everybody. Fentanyl and fentanyl analogs are not naloxone resistant. They will respond to naloxone. You cannot overdose by touching fentanyl. This is a common misconception. So much so the American College of Medical Toxicology and the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology released a joint statement. And honestly, if you could overdose by touching fentanyl, that would have happened to pharmacists, docs, and nurses years ago. It's not being found in Canada. You cannot vape fentanyl, and you should not be afraid of overdosing by inhaling secondhand smoke. Okay, a little data for the nerds. So we've been an agency for 21 years. We've only had the ability to legally exchange syringes for the last 11. We have been doing pipe distribution at my place for the last few years. Um, pipes are gray area, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Those access episodes are every single time we're engaging with folks, creating a relationship where they can dispose properly of used syringes, access to sterile syringes, offered pipes, and then every single time offered referrals. Do you want to talk to staff today about Medicaid enrollment, mental health, substance use treatment, naloxone, health education classes, HIV hep C testing, fentanyl and xylazine testing strips. Over 115,000 times they said yes. People who use drugs are the true first responders in this overdose crisis. They need access to naloxone first and foremost. We've trained over 7,000 folks in the last 11 years. We're at 4,045 lives saved to date. We know that because they come back to us. They tell us about it. We fill out a form. We high five them. We used to be neighbors across the street between Fanatic and Shishkabah. We certainly miss that. We're now at 8th and Lincoln. And in the past three and a half years, we've done 68,000 access episodes at that uh, location. Uh, it used to be folks are smoking or injecting meth and heroin about 50-50, but you can't find heroin because the drug market brought fentanyl to us. Um, so we're about 80% meth, 15% heroin upon intake in quarter two. This is just a snapshot to let you know that we'd be well within our right just to exchange syringes or just give out pipes. There's a ton of life that happens in there. We're engaging folks with a healthier and safer them today with health education crisis, street outreach and high drug traffic areas, access to mail and phone, overdose prevention, testing, access to on-site service providers. We have a leadership cultivation program. We do litter cleanups in the neighborhood. 
And I know you just had a prevention panel. We just want to have more conversations about a safety first curriculum, having real conversations for middle schoolers and high schoolers, because right now we're treating it like the sex, meaning we're not talking about it, so it's high risk and undereducated. I'm like, oh, oops, being a good neighbor. Ooh, ooh, boop, boop. Okay, so what, Lisa Ravel? What do you want? Okay, so we are in a pickle, and the pickle is, is that the drug market has brought us a smokable drug that is taking place of a drug that used to be injected, right? Heroin, we had black tar heroin, um, you could only really inject that. Because we have drugs that are coming to us that need to be smoked, um, we need access to safer smoking kits. Now, we are doing it as a gray area. In the last few years, we've given out 100,000 pipes. The health departments that are that have syringe access programs are not able to give them out because they are not in there as specifically decriminalizing the paraphernalia, not only for the health department to be able to give it out, but also folks on the streets could potentially get tickets uh, as paraphernalia. Now, there's a few reasons why we want to make sure that folks have access to smoking equipment. Um, injecting drugs into your bloodstream is very quick. We know that a lot of bacteria leads to skin tissue infections. Anytime you break your skin, you're at risk of infection. One swipe of an alcohol pad will keep folks out of the emergency department for costly skin tissue infections. When people smoke, particularly crack and meth, they have to heat the pipe itself as opposed to heating the substance like when somebody smokes cannabis. This can cause the pipe to get very hot. It can burn on your lips if you don't wait long enough for the pipe to cool. Um, a lot of times people do have open wounds and sores, which could put you at high higher risk of getting hepatitis C because hepatitis C lives outside of the body for so long. We also want to make sure that folks have access to a rubber tip so if they have to share the pipe, they hold on to the rubber tip so that they don't have to end up sharing that and having their mouth where other people's mouths are, not only for hepatitis C but also COVID-19. And then smoking, you know, there's a lot of bacteria in your mouth and so when your mouth is very dry, that's a lot of times when it causes bacteria on your gums and issues with poor oral hygiene. So we want to make sure that folks have gum and... Uh, mints, things like that, hygiene kits so that people can um, go ahead and, what do the kids call it? Brush their teeth. Okay. So a lot of people prefer to smoke meth to injecting it. When we didn't have access to that, all they were doing was injecting. Now they've shifted. I'm about 50-50 now at who I'm serving. It used to just be people who inject that were maybe smoking. Now I am uh, serving a lot of folks who do smoke. I am seeing up to 180 people per morning at my agency being proactive about their health. No one's mandated to be there. That's the all-time uh, all records I'm having every day. Uh, there is California legislative language. Anyone may possess safer drug use materials, including pipes and other non-injection drug use materials when acquired from a syringe access program. Syringe access participants are exempt from criminal prosecution per possession of such items. We absolutely positively need that. In a time when I'm seeing more folks, a lot of my colleagues are having to see less folks because they don't have access to this. And again, we're on the front lines of the worst overdose crisis we've ever been in, and we are telling you that we have to be very adaptable to the drug market. I cannot come back here every year. Year. I am a direct service provider. I dabble, I dabble in policy, babes, but I'm a direct service provider, and I'm telling you we are struggling and we absolutely need this. Other ways we're struggling. People who use drugs and healthcare providers have a very tumultuous relationship. Um, we did a survey a couple of years ago with uh, Denver Health and University Hospitals, emergency departments, and inpatient. 
Um, we were very, uh, we were thought incredibly problematic that 34 clinicians and an additional 33 clinicians agreed or were unsure whether people who should be put in jail or prison if they are caught with illicit drugs, these are medical providers, doctors, nurses, inpatient. So we were like, well, how can we support you, right? A lot of folks didn't know where to send patients to access harm reduction services, so we want to be supportive to that. They felt like they needed to prioritize connecting to patients to treatment over harm reduction. That must be frustrating. One of the only things they can do in the ED is Suboxone, and it's very difficult to induct Suboxone on people who use fentanyl. Um, they were deferring harm reduction conversations to social workers. Uh, they felt that they don't have enough time to discuss harm reduction with patients. So we were like, okay, we got you. And then in the end, we were a little concerned because there were some folks that were saying, listen, we... People who inject drugs tend to be abusive to myself and my coworkers. It's like the boy who crawled wolf. We only have sympathy and compassion for people who inject so many times and getting burned before we assume they're all terrible people who will do anything to get what they want from us. Um, it hurts to put in effort into patients and have them trash it, and the people who work in the ED only have a certain threshold before giving up on essentially all people who inject drugs. I want a better relationship, but there is a deeply entrenched street rumor in Denver folks are going to be warrant checked in the emergency departments. We think that's happening and we also think they're being arrested out of these facilities. With the continued criminalization of people who use drugs and xylazine entering the test supply, we do want to be very supportive to the other interim committee that has a really long name. It's like behavioral health, boop, 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 criminal legal system. I know you're on both of those. Um, they have a bill idea in there that would prohibit healthcare providers for inquiring about or checking a patient's criminal history or warrant status. I wanted to put this on the radar of this committee. If that doesn't go forward there, I would like to see this in this committee. I would also like to see support from this committee for that bill. Testing strips. Um, I know Maggie's going to talk in a little bit about drug checking in general. We've had access to fentanyl testing strips. We also have access to xylazine testing strips where folks can test their drugs to see if fentanyl or xylazine is present. There are other drug checking options that are needed, and again, Maggie will speak to that. Um, we all are also very supportive of methadone coming out of the clinics and being in, out of pharmacies and office-based. Um, that's very important to us. We know that the clinics are run by the DEA, and we do need to have access to this highly stigmatized but life-saving medication. Um, I know this is a federal issue, but if we could potentially get maybe a letter or some sort of thing to our Colorado delegate saying this is very important, I do know that there was uh, federal legislation happening at this time. Anybody in the state ha has opportunities to be able to use this four-foot-high disposal kiosk. If you have inappropriately discarded syringes in your area, the state will pay for this. We have about six of these in Denver, and these have been truly life-changing. Um, we have use sites all over town. Clearly, they're outside in alleys and parks and in business bathrooms. Matt will speak to that. We are uh, utilize the naloxone bulk purchase fund at the state. They are going through seven to eight hundred thousand dollars a month. We absolutely, positively need them to continue to have funding. Um, we don't support anything over four milligrams. Um, we do know that there's some newbies coming out with things over four milligrams. We don't support that. Um, and this is from my participants who are the true first responders in this overdose crisis. This is the last two and a half years, where seventy to seventy-seven percent of the lives saved by naloxone that they've done are outside in alleys, in parks, and in business bathrooms. So they are the true heroes in making sure that people are alive outdoors. Um, otherwise, people are coming up on these overdose deaths, and this is a larger community trauma issue. 
I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the fact that we're going to have an unpredictable drug supply for the rest of our lives. It's called the iron law prohibition. The harder the enforcement, the more potent the drug. Lather, rinse, repeat. We're also seeing new stuff off the East Coast. Nitazines, which is a new class of synthetic opioids. Xylazine that we've already spoken about and I'm sure we'll have more conversations about. And just a safe supply of alcohol was not meant to solve all the problems of alcoholism. It did provide the starting point of limiting the need to correct the many problems created from it being illegal. Safe supply works towards ending the criminalization of the vulnerable through drug policy. Safe supply brings back the possibility of hope, stability, and dignity for people who use drugs. It will not be a cure-all or a magic bullet, but it is a necessary component of ending the war on drugs that has done so much to divide and harm our society. Those who are truly invested in ending prohibition will make expanding safe supply a top priority. We will never treatment or incarcerate our way out of an unpredictable and unregulated drug supply. That was Lisa Rayville, Executive Director of the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver, Colorado, testifying August 7th before the Colorado Legislature's Interim Opioid and Other Substance Use Disorders Study Committee. On August 30th, the committee voted to send a bill on OPCs forward through the drafting process so that it can become a bill in the next session. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. The Sentencing Project and a coalition of other organizations held the Civic Power Convening August 24th through 27th. The full title of the convening was Civic Power, Challenging 50 Years of Mass Incarceration. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson gave a keynote speech on the 25th. Now, as been articulated already before I became mayor of the city of Chicago, I served as a middle school public school teacher. Now, teaching middle school has tremendous advantages, mostly No matter what I do, I get to go to heaven for free. I am confident that the Lord will say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. But teaching middle school, if you would just indulge me for a second and try not to nod off. I'm just saying, you know, don't act like y'all always enjoyed going to social studies. Um, But it is in that that experience that really gave me the motivation to become the person that I am today. And even though it's been some time since I've been in the classroom, it taught me so much. So let's talk a little bit about history. As some of you all know, in 1861, there was a profound struggle just outside Washington, D.C. It was called the Battle of Bull Run. And this battle, in which almost 3,000 Union soldiers died, marked the beginning of a formative war in this nation's history. It was a battle some say between the North and the South, but in reality, it was a battle between freedom against slavery. And in this first battle, we know that slavery prevailed. So the Union had to regroup, retool, build its armies, and train soldiers. Many more battles were fought over the next four years until the side of freedom decided to take a definitive stance and actually allow black soldiers to participate in this epic struggle. Now, many of you all have studied and know the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who made the case when he said, who would be free for themselves must strike the first blow. And just like that, almost 200,000 black soldiers enlisted to strike the blow. But it was not only the soldiers that struck the blow that brought down this mighty system of oppression called slavery. It was also enslaved people themselves in what W.E.B. Du Bois called a general strike 
where hundreds of thousands and then millions of enslaved people walked off the plantation and crippled the Southern system. They cast their votes for freedom with their feet, walking hundreds of miles to union lines and dealing the death blow to the cause of slavery. April 9th, you won't have a quiz on this, don't panic, okay? 1865, where freedom had been declared over slavery. Now, as awesome as this victory comes across in the pages in our history books across this country, this would not be a country that would be ultimately satisfied with that decision. And it was awesome. But this would not be an oligarchy of white supremacy but we still weren't satisfied. This would ultimately become a multiracial democracy, something that the world had not experienced of like, but the world would come to understand that the people of this democracy would still not be satisfied. And as you know, that the 15th Amendment that was ratified by Congress, given this power to ultimately build a democracy. We know that as emphatic as that language is, it has not provided the full satisfaction and the realization of who we are as a nation. But here's what it says. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied by the United States or by any state on the account of race, color, or previous conditions of servitude shall not be denied. Now, could it be any clearer? Has there ever been a constitutional amendment that straightforward in our nation's history? So how is it that we find ourselves over 150 years later organizing still for the right to vote? How is it that we are still engaged in the struggle between freedom and slavery over a century and a half after hundreds of thousands of Americans sacrificed their lives for freedom? How is it that in the year 2023, we find ourselves with more people locked up in chains than in the year 1823? How is it that incarceration people, those who are incarcerated, still are being forced to work for pennies on the dollar, a country that is still not satisfied? And so for that answer to that difficult question, he must again look to Du Bois as he studied Black re Reconstruction in America, that slavery went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. Because they imposed poll taxes, literacy tests, the Black codes, Jim Crow laws, the Ku Klux Klan terrorism. You have people right now in this country that still refuse to accept the results of the civil rights as well as the Civil War. There are people who want a rematch on the Civil War. Though their tools may have changed, instead of lynch mobs, they use voter suppression, gerrymandering, fear-mongering, state legislators, right-wing governors, but their goal is still the same. Martin Luther King made it very clear. Until we possess the right to vote, I do not possess myself. In a word, slavery. 
He struggled with millions of others, black, white, Latino, Native Americans, and Asian Americans, unified in a mass movement to force our government to pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965, of which they thought that would be the bill that would solve it all. Over one million in the state of Florida alone had their rights to vote stripped from them. And unfortunately, we still find ourselves in a position where we do indeed need another voting bill. But isn't that why we're here this morning? We need to build off the work of Frederick Douglass, those who sacrificed their lives, W.E.B. Du Bois, Martin Luther King Jr. We need a voting rights bill that will force the 15th Amendment without exception. That's what we need, and that's what we're going to do, and that's what we're going to build. That was Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson speaking at the Civic Power Convening, organized by the Sentencing Project and a coalition of other organizations, which was held August 24th through 27th in Chicago and online. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline is a volunteer production for community radio and syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Find this and other installments of Prison Pipeline on the web at kboo.fm slash prison pipeline. You'll find a link here to subscribe to the Prison Pipeline podcast. Prison Pipeline has a Facebook page. It's at facebook.com slash prison pipeline. Please give its page a like and share it with friends. Join us again next week for another edition of Prison Pipeline. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. So long.